This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of congenital scoliosis from the spine section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Congenital scoliosis is a congenital spinal deformity that occurs due to the failure of normal vertebral development during the fourth to sixth week of gestation. Diagnosis is made with AP and lateral full spine radiographs. MRI is required to assess for neural axis abnormalities. Treatment can be observation or surgical management depending on the specific anatomical anomaly and curve progression. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as prevalence of congenital scoliosis, it's estimated at 1% to 4% in the general population. Moving on to the etiology of congenital scoliosis, the mechanism is caused by a developmental defect in the formation of the mesenchymal onlage. As far as causes, most cases occur spontaneously. However, it can also be secondary to certain maternal exposures like diabetes, alcohol, valproic acid, and hyperthermia. The genetic etiology of congenital scoliosis is uncertain. As far as associated conditions, congenital scoliosis may occur in isolation or with associated conditions. Congenital scoliosis is associated with systemic anomalies in up to 61% of cases, like cardiac defects 10% of the time, genitourinary defects 25% of the time, and spinal cord malformations. Congenital scoliosis can also be associated with underlying syndromes or chromosomal abnormalities, for example, Vactorel syndrome in 38% to 55% of cases, and this is characterized by vertebral malformations, anal atresia, cardiac malformations, tracheoesophageal fistula, renal, and radial anomalies, as well as limb defects. Other associated underlying syndromes or chromosomal abnormalities with congenital scoliosis includes Goldenhar slash auriculo-auricular vertebral syndrome, which manifests with the hemifacial microsomia and epibulbar dermoids. Other underlying syndromes with congenital scoliosis include Jarko-Levin syndrome slash spondylocostal dysostosis, which will manifest with a short trunk dwarfism, multiple vertebral and rib defects in fusion. This is most commonly autosomal recessive and is often associated with thoracic insufficiency syndrome, which is caused by shortening of the thorax and rib fusions, and the result is the thorax is unable to support lung growth and respiratory decompensation. Another syndrome that is associated with congenital scoliosis is clipophile syndrome, which will manifest with short neck, low posterior hairline, and fusion of the cervical vertebrae. Finally, allergial syndrome is also associated with congenital scoliosis and will manifest with peripheral pulmonic stenosis, cholestasis, and facial dysmorphism. Now, let's go over the classification of congenital scoliosis. So the classification of congenital scoliosis is divided into three types, failure of formation, failure of segmentation, and mixed. So failure of formation can be divided into fully segmented hemivertebra, which has normal disc space above and below, semi-segmented hemivertebra, which is when the hemivertebra is fused to the adjacent vertebra on one side with the disc on the other, unsegmented hemivertebra, in which the hemivertebra is fused to the vertebra on each side, incarcerated hemivertebra, which is found within the lateral margins of the vertebra above and below, unincarcerated hemivertebra, which is laterally positioned, and finally a wedge vertebra. Failure of segmentation can be divided into block vertebra and a bar body. A block vertebra is a bilateral bony bar, while a bar body is a unilateral unsegmented bar that is common and likely to progress. The mixed type of congenital scoliosis will have a unilateral unsegmented bar with a contralateral hemivertebra, which has the most rapid progression. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include an AP and lateral plane film, which is usually sufficient to confirm the diagnosis. 
Moving on to CT, note that judicious use is recommended due to the radiation exposure. And 3D CT is useful to better delineate the posterior bony anatomy and define the type for surgical planning. Moving on to MRI, note that all patients with congenital scoliosis prior to surgery should have an MRI to evaluate for a neural axis abnormality, which is found in 20 to 40% of cases, including Chiari malformation, a tethered cord, syringomyelia, diastomatomyelia, and intradural lipoma. Moving on to the technique of an MRI, know that sedation is required in infants, so it may be delayed if no surgery is planned and there is no neurological deficits. Finally, with respect to additional medical studies in the workup of congenital scoliosis, know that it's important to obtain certain studies for associated abnormalities, such as renal ultrasound or MRI, as well as an echocardiogram if you're suspicious for cardiac manifestations. Moving on to the treatment of congenital scoliosis, this can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes observation and bracing, and know that indications for observation include absence of a documented progression, for example, in the setting of an incarcerated hemivertebra, non-segmental hemivertebra, and some partially segmented hemivertebra. Bracing is not indicated in the primary treatment of congenital scoliosis as no effectiveness is shown, but may be used to control supple compensatory curves, but effectiveness is unproven. Operative options for congenital scoliosis includes posterior fusion, plus or minus osteotomies and modest correction, anterior slash posterior spinal fusion, plus or minus vertebrectomy, a distraction-based growing rod construct, osteotomies between ribs, and finally, a hemivertebrectomy. So starting with the posterior fusion, plus or minus osteotomies and modest correction, indications include a hemivertebra opposite a unilateral bar that does not require a vertebrectomy at any age. This otherwise will relentlessly progress until fused. Other indications include older patients with significant progression, neurologic deficits, or a declining respiratory function. Finally, keep in mind that having many pedicle screws may decrease the crankshaft phenomenon and obviate the need for an anterior fusion. Moving on to anterior slash posterior spinal fusion plus or minus vertebrectomy, indications include young patients with significant progression, neurologic deficits, or declining respiratory function. Young patients are defined as girls less than 10 years old and boys less than 12 years old. Other indications for an anterior slash posterior spinal fusion plus or minus vertebrectomy are patients with failure of formation with a contralateral failure of segmentation at any age that requires hemivertebrectomy and or significant correction. This may be done from a posterior approach. As far as the technique for an anterior slash posterior spinal fusion plus or minus vertebrectomy, note that nutritional status of a patient must be optimized prior to surgery. Moving on to distraction-based growing rod constructs, as far as indications, this option may be used in an attempt to control the deformity during spinal growth and delay arthrodesis. As far as outcomes, know that with this option, the growing rod construct needs to be lengthened approximately every six months for best results. Moving on to osteotomies between ribs, this is indicated for multiple defined as greater than four fused ribs with potential for thoracic insufficiency syndrome. As far as outcomes, long-term follow-up is needed to determine efficacy. However, the downside is this may make the chest stiff and hurt pulmonary function. Finally, a hemivertebrectomy is usually done from a posterior approach, particularly with kyphosis. Indications include patients aged 3 to 8 years old, and keep in mind that younger is difficult to get a good anchor purchase. Other indications for a hemivertebrectomy include progressive or significant deformity. Now, let's go over spinal arthrodesis plus or minus vertebrectomy slash osteotomy in a bit more detail. So, in situ arthrodesis, anterior slash posterior or posterior alone, is indicated for unilateral unsegmented bars with minimal deformity. A hemiepiphysiodesis is indicated for intact growth plates on the concave side of the deformity. 
It's also indicated for patients less than 5 years old with less than a 40 to 50 degree curve. This option has mixed results. An osteotomy refers to osteotomy of a bar. A hemivertebrectomy is indicated for a hemivertebra with progressive curve causing truncal imbalance and oblique takeoff. This is often caused by a lumbosacral hemivertebra. Know that patients less than 6 years old with a flexible curve of less than 40 degrees is the best candidate. Finally, spinal column shortening resection is indicated for deformities that present late and have severe decompensation. It's also indicated for rigid severe deformities as well as fixed pelvic obliquity. Now let's talk about some complications of congenital scoliosis. The ones to know include the crankshaft phenomenon, short stature, neurologic injury, and soft tissue compromise. The crankshaft phenomenon is a deformity caused by performing a posterior fusion alone. Short stature refers to growth of the spinal column that is affected by fusion, and know that younger patients are affected more. As far as neurologic injury, surgical risk factors include over-distraction or shortening, overcorrection, and harvesting of the segmental vessels. Keep in mind that somatosensory and motor-evoked potentials are important to obtain. Finally, in terms of soft tissue compromise, nutritional aspects of care are essential to ensure adequate soft tissue healing. Finally, let's end this review session talking about the prognosis of congenital scoliosis. So know that the prognosis is dependent on potential for progression and early intervention. Know that progression is most rapid in the first three years of life. Anterior failure of formation is rapidly progressive and often results in paralysis. Anterior failure of segmentation can be rapidly progressive as well, but rarely results in paralysis. Remember that progression is determined by the morphology of the vertebrae. Rate of progression from greatest to least is a unilateral unsegmented bar with contralateral hemivertebra. Note that this has the greatest potential for rapid progression at 5 to 10 degrees per year. The next greatest rate of progression is a unilateral unsegmented bar, then a fully segmented hemivertebra, then an unincarcerated hemivertebra, then an incarcerated hemivertebra, then an unsegmented hemivertebra, and then finally a block vertebra, which has a little chance for progression at less than 2 degrees per year. Know that the presence of fused ribs increases the risk of progression. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic might be tested. First question. The parents of a 14-month-old boy bring their child into your office. They state the child has reached developmental milestones at appropriate ages, but noticed he was leaning to one side when standing or walking. A radiograph was obtained demonstrating a non-flexible 40-degree curve with multiple vertebral anomalies, highlighted by a convex segmented hemivertebra associated with a concave unilateral bar. After ensuring that the patient has no other associated anomalies in other organ systems, an MRI of the spine revealed no intraspinal abnormalities. What treatment would you recommend to this family? And the choices are 1. Continued observation with annual follow-up. 2. Risser casting. 3. Vector. 4. Instrumentation with growing rods without fusion. And 5. Excision of the hemivertebra with short-segment posterior instrumented fusion. The correct answer to this question is 5. Excision of the hemivertebra with short-segment posterior instrumented fusion. So the clinical presentation is consistent with congenital scoliosis with a convex segmented hemivertebra, that is failure of formation, associated with a concave unilateral bar, that is failure of separation. The most appropriate treatment is excision of the hemivertebra with short-segment posterior instrumented fusion. In congenital scoliosis, the risk of progression is determined by the morphology of the vertebra. The worst prognosis comes when there is a unilateral unsegmented bar with contralateral hemivertebra. 
This morphology universally progresses and therefore surgical fusion is required regardless of age and deformity. Akbarnia et al. reviews treatment options for very young children with spinal deformities. He states that a hemivertebrectomy is an effective treatment for congenital scoliosis and that it is most commonly done through a combined anterior and posterior approach. While a posterior-only approach is possible, the author cautions that one must watch closely for deformity progression and the development of the crankshaft phenomenon. Holt et al. retrospectively reviewed the results of anterior and posterior hemivertebra excision or wedge resection plus arthrodesis in 37 patients with congenital scoliosis. The average curve decreased from 54 degrees preoperatively to 33 degrees postoperatively. Minimal progression of the curve was detected over 12 years of follow-up. King et al. reported on nine patients with progressive congenital scoliosis, including one patient who was only 12 months old. All patients underwent a posterior-only transpedicular anterior hemiepiphysiodesis of at least one hemivertebra and posterior fusion. They reported that curve progression was stopped in all cases, and four of the nine patients had a correction in the curve of 10 degrees or more. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer one, continued observation with annual follow-up is incorrect because the patient has vertebral anomalies that will progress without intervention. Answer two, risser casting is incorrect because while risser casting is used to treat young children with scoliosis, it is unlikely to be effective in patients with a convex segmented hemivertebra from failure of formation associated with a concave unilateral bar from failure of separation. Answer three, vector is incorrect as the primary indication for vector insertion is patients with scoliosis and thoracic insufficiency syndrome, which is a disorder defined by the Scoliosis Research Society as the, quote, inability of the thorax to support normal respiration or lung growth. While vector may be indicated for other patients with congenital scoliosis, answer five, excision of the hemivertebra with short segment posterior instrumented fusion avoids the morbidity associated with frequent lengthening and results in less fusion levels. Finally, answer four, instrumentation with growing rods without fusion is incorrect, as similar to the vector, the growing rod may be used in patients with progressive congenital scoliosis. Again, answer five, avoids the morbidity associated with frequent lengthening and results in less fusion levels. And moving on to the final question, a child presents with multiple hemivertebrae on radiographs. Which of the following conditions is least likely to be associated with this disorder? And the choices are one, unilateral absent kidney, two, Seavers disease, three, ventricular septal defect, four, tethered cord, and five, thumb hypoplasia. The correct answer to this question is two, Seavers disease. So Seavers disease or calcaneal apophysitis is not associated with congenital scoliosis. Congenital scoliosis is associated with other anomalies 60% of the time. These anomalies can appear independently or as part of the Vactorel syndrome, that is vertebral anomalies, anorectal atresia, tracheoesophageal fistula, and renal as well as vascular anomalies. Other associated orthopedic conditions include clubfoot, developmental dysplasia of the hip, limb hypoplasia, Sprengel's deformity, clipophile syndrome, foot asymmetry, vertical tali, leg atrophy, and pes cavus. Heedquist et al. in 2004 reviewed congenital scoliosis. They recommend surgery in young children, severe deformities or deformities that tend to progress rapidly, truncal imbalance, and anomalies at the cervical, thoracic, and lumbosacral junction because of imbalance in the shoulder neck and lumbar region respectively. Surgical options include in situ fusion, convex hemiepiphysiodesis, hemivertebra excision, correction and instrumented fusion, osteotomies with fusion, growing rods, and expandable ribs. 
Heedquist et al. in 2007 reviewed congenital scoliosis. They state that fully segmented hemivertebra with definable discs above and below are more likely to cause curvature compared with an unsegmented hemivertebra fused to the vertebra above and below. Also, anomalies at the cervical thoracic and lumbosacral junctions produce more visible deformities than that at other areas. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, unilateral absent kidney is incorrect, as up to 20% of patients may have a urological abnormality that can include unilateral absent kidneys, obstructive uropathy, horseshoe kidney, renal aplasia, duplicate ureters, and hypospadias. Evaluation by MRI or ultrasound is needed. Answer 3, ventricular septal defect is incorrect, as up to 26% of patients have cardiac defects. Ventricular septal defect is the most common, followed by atrial septal defects. Other defects include patent ductus arteriosus, tetralogy of Fallot, and transposition of the great vessels. Answer 4, tethered cord is incorrect, as intraspinal abnormalities occur in up to 37% of patients. Risk is higher with segmentation and mixed defects. Anomalies include diastomatomyelia, syringomyelia, tethered cord, dural bands, cysts, and a tight phylum terminale. Answer 5, thumb hypoplasia and radial club hand are limb defects found in Vactorel syndrome and are associated with congenital scoliosis. That's all for this review about congenital scoliosis. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.